Today's podcast is sponsored by Composer.Trade, the premier platform for investing in professionally created investment strategies that trade based on logic and data. Composer.Trade is putting the power of quants into the hands of regular investors. With Composer.Trade, you can invest in strategies that execute trades automatically, depending on market movements. You can even build your own strategy from scratch with their drag-and-drop portfolio editor. There's a reason why over $1 trillion is managed by quantitative hedge funds. Stop trading on impulse and start investing smarter today by going to composer.trade slash value. That's composer.trade slash value. See important disclaimers at composer.trade slash All right. Hello and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like this podcast, it would mean a lot if you could rate, subscribe, review it wherever you're listening to it. With me today, I'm happy to have on my friend and the founder of Ranger Capital, Chris Demuth. Chris, how's it going? It's great. Nice to be here, Andrew. Great. Great to have you on for our monthly talk. Let me start this podcast the way I do every podcast. First, a disclaimer to remind everyone that nothing on this podcast is investing advice. That's always true on this podcast, but probably particularly true today because we're, we're going to be hitting through a, a bunch of securities. But, you know, People should just keep in mind, not investing advice, consult a financial advisor. And, and then the second way I start every podcast is with a pitch for you, my guest, but don't have to do that today. This is like our 10th one of these, so people can go back and listen to the first nine for a full pitch. Uh, anyway, it is September, is today September 27th? Late September, September 26th. We're talking in the morning. Lots going on in the markets. It's been pretty crazy out there. So I just want to pause there and ask, what's on your mind today? I've been thinking a lot about antitrust over the past week. I've been thinking a lot about tobacco over the past week, which we were just chatting about a little bit. Those are probably two of my biggest thoughts. It's been an exciting week for companies that have chosen to go up against the government in court. Uh, we have uh, very aggressive regulators right now, and they've been uh, suing to block deals. Uh, and uh, w- one of the jokes I heard amongst the antitrust bar is if we just all surge at the same time, they don't even have enough regulator. They don't even have enough litigators to block everything. We could just kind of bum rush them and see, you know, they're going to have to let something through if they really want to sue everything. Um, but uh, they'll run out of uh, lawyers. Uh, but um, uh, there were a couple of developments there. And then as we were just talking about uh, tobacco, which is uh, one of my favorite industry topics. Great. Well, why don't we start an antitrust? So you said sure. last week there were a couple of uh, cases that were kind of setbacks to the government's, mm-hmm. an- I guess, antitrust arguments. What? Why don't you talk about what those are and kind of how they impact for, you know, there, there sure. are quite a few antitrust cases out there for investors to look at remaining. So how those impact the remaining antitrust cases? Absolutely. Uh, So a couple of big speeches, uh, both uh, the head of the FTC and DOJ. Um, I feel like the FTC uh, chair has gotten a lot of press and attention and the DOJ AAG, the equivalent in the other agencies, has been kind of like catching up a little bit, kind of kind of competitive uh, speeches, because even though these two are very aligned, uh, the agencies are always in a little bit of competition. Um, I would say that they're both very aggressive and kind of reminding everybody they mean what they say, uh, both aggressive in terms of bringing their own kind of ideological focus to antitrust and aggressive in terms of not really worrying too much about 
the prospects in court. The same kind of moderate voices that have historically been fairly bipartisan uh, kind of measure their successes in wins and losses in courts. They're, they're both pragmatic when they deal with companies. And then unsurprisingly, they also want to bring cases that they will win. And they will frequently back off if they have a problem either way, either a problem often being convinced by their staff that they're right, or a problem prospectively in their estimates of the likelihood in front of a judge. These two are not that worried about either. Uh, they're more aggressive than their staff, which I think has never been the case before. Uh, typically, uh, the staff likes bringing cases. Uh, and even under Obama, uh, you had a staff wanting to bring more cases than the uh, I, I usually say grownups, but then the um, then the political appointees. Uh, but this is the case where the staff sometimes saying, "I don't know what you're talking about," and they just want to bring something, especially when it relates to industries that are important to them. Big tech. And, and if I if I could just jump in there, I, I mean, just to explain why I think the the staff look they're working they they've got a view they joined this thing to you know you joined the DOJ antitrust department because you want to enforce antitrust law. Yeah. So you know you kind of get that if you've ever been like. The, the manager of something, you've got your employees and they're always bringing you great ideas and you kind of got to mm. focus on the few. And for the the actual political appointees, they have to look at all these and say, hey, if we do this, we have limited resources. Mm. I'm kind of staking my career on it, right? Because if we go and bring a case and it it gets rejected, boom, that's a lot of political capital. People are going to look at me as a little tainted. So you've got, that's the traditional way. And here you've got the reverse, right? The staff are saying, Oh, I, I don't think these are great cases because yes, they want to do antitrust, but they don't want to bring bad antitrust or do work for cases that, I mean, bringing a case takes a lot of work, do it for something that's going to get rejected. And here you have the political points. He's saying, I have a political view. I don't care if I lose expressing that political view is kind of what I'm here for might be helpful for me for some other ways. Am, am I kind of interpreting all that correctly? I, I would say that's correct. And the other element I would bring in is that historical antitrust analysis, which has historically been fairly bipartisan, based largely on economics and historical legal precedent, is kind of a skill set that these staffers have. If they're going to go on to a lucrative career, higher compensation career in the private sector, they want their skill set to be kind of valid and used. And uh, this uh, administration, they they kind of call it whole of government, which is if we have a target we are going after, we are using all of the tools. And these tools do not have to necessarily relate to their nominal purposes. Uh, Deal-specific antitrust reviews now, they're pretty much telegraphing. If they want to go after a company, they're going to use whatever process that they have. Uh, if that's what's going to happen, it kind of gets far afield from what the staffers know how to do. Uh, the, the, you know, they're not necessarily in it for any one administration. They might have their proclivities on average. They might, you know, um, they're, they, they skew a little more Democrat than the population overall. They, but, but, but they also have a lot more longevity than any political leader. And so this politicization of it is a little uh, creating some conflict. I'd say, especially at the FTC, there's been a lot of turnover and there's been a lot of kind of uh, leaks from the civil uh, staff on some of the things they're doing, but um, the, uh, and then, and then losing in court, that's going to, that's going to make, it's going to embolden companies and it's going to um, make uh, the staff involved and happy. So I think we, you said at the start and you mentioned 
FTC going after companies that are targets and they're using every tool. I, I think the mm-hmm. clear companies you're thinking of here are all the the big t- tech companies, right? Amazon especially. and Facebook, Amazon, Facebook, Meta, whatever people call it these days, are especially in the, the crosshairs. But uh, you said at the beginning, last week was a bad week for mm-hmm. uh, the regulators. And I just want to go into that. I, I think the, the two things are United Health, one in action, one in court, DOJ yep. suits to block their acquisition of change healthcare. DOJ got lost in court. And then the other was a sugar deal that I believe that was the DOJ loss in court as well. So I just want to pause there. What happened there and how does that affect things going forward? Two completely decisive kind of devastating legal decisions where the judges were just completely one-sided against the government uh, in the, uh, I I guess I paid more attention uh, to the change deal. I have a tiny position, uh, 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 should have been bigger. Uh, It wasn't a big spread though. The market had kind of backed into this being the likely outcome. Uh, the, The two kind of topics that were really under scrutiny were verticality and market definition. So on the first verticality in the United Health, um, the the government, one, um, had a vertical theory that that they failed to convince the judge on, and the companies had what they thought was a reasonable, uh, they, they, they litigated the fix. They said, here's the things that we would do. Uh, and then the government kind of tried to make the point they were making and kind of talking past the overture. And the judge found the overture completely uh, of solving the problem. So uh, approved it with the proposed uh, effects. Um, and, and that kind of seemed pretty pragmatic. And I would say the judge sounded precisely like the DOJ themselves would have historically sounded on deals like this. Um, you know, kind of we have talked about and expected there's going to be this kind of uh, cascade of lawsuits. And this was kind of early on that, and there could be others, uh, but um, but the judge kind of put things back in place. Um, when you look at US and European antitrust enforcement, there's this big difference that the Europeans can really just do what they want to do in both the EU and in the UK at the CMA. The government, the US, has to bring their case. Um, they're given some amount of deference, but uh, they have to tell it to a judge. In this case, the judge was completely unconvinced. Now, so I, I think we're going to talk about some specific examples in a second, but I, sure. I just want to pull on one thread you mentioned there. Like one of my worries, so United change was, I I think, exclusively U.S., right? I I don't think there's any international business there. But a a lot of the companies we're going to talk about, like something like an Activision Blizzard, it really jumps to mind here. But, you know, they do have, that is international, right? You don't just need U.S. approval, you need. And when I talk to other ARBs and stuff, like the focus is all on the U.S. And, you know, generally, if you get U.S., you tend to get EU. If you get EU, you tend to get U.S. But I do worry, like, Everyone is focused on the U.S. and saying, oh, well, this is great. If the U.S. brings a suit, they're going to lose in court and X, Y, Z deal will go through. And Mm -hmm. I do worry like, okay, maybe. But if the U.S. brings a case and like the DOJ, the EU regulators or the U.K. regulators just want to follow on what the U.S. is doing and everybody kind of doesn't like big tech in particular, like won't the EU just bring something and kind of shut it down over there where they've got a lot less kind of – appeals process or legal ability to overturn it. What do you think about that? I think it's a, a, a very valid concern. Uh, correct. In the case of United Health Change, it was just 
HSR, the US process. And so everybody knew you're going to have to take it to a judge. And when I say everybody knew that affected not just the government's leverage, but affected how the companies negotiated this, right? So if you were United Health, I think at this point, you'd be very happy with how your antitrust lawyers gamed this out. They used the flexibility they have and they won uh, in the case, and it, which just jumps off the page um, uh, in the case of multiple jurisdictions is Activision. I mean, Activision is uh, the biggest, the most important uh, case that has a U.S. review. It has to go through HSR. They will have to take it to a judge. It is a vertical case. It, 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 it rhymes with United Health. Um, and also, just to bring in for a sentence or two, the sugar deal, that was a economically unsupported narrow market definition that fit what the government wanted to say. If you can control the denominator, uh, you can say whatever you want to say about anything. Um, uh, if you can say, here is the geography, I mean, you're always a monopolist of your own product. Uh, and so you have to expand it to what is economically relevant in terms of real price discovery. And an economist can do that. There's an answer to the question, what's the geographical market? Uh, and something like sugar, it was not as specific to the Southeast US as the government wanted to claim. The econometrics weren't there. It was just what they wanted to say. Um, I think that in uh, the case of Activision, you have uh, you have to really ask what the right market definition is. And you have to ask, you know, are there real foreclosure issues? Two problems with that. One, judges are much less likely. Uh, to, it's, it's much more subtle to bring a vertical case. Um, secondly, it's much more fixable, right? Like at the last minute, Microsoft could make overtures and say, you know, fair and reasonable access. Uh, there's kind of, uh, there's ways contractually to fix a lot of the things you could come up with. So in any event, it's a case that would be tricky in front of a US judge. But the issue is what you raised. It's especially relevant to the UK CMA. Historically, they have been uh, closely aligned with the US DOJ, and they could carry water for the Americans. When the CMA blocks something, you are blocked. Uh, it is dead, dead, or deadest. And uh, in this case, you have one side that might want to block it and the other side that has the tools. And so, you know, could there be a regulator on regulator quid pro quo? Um, I think it's highly possible. Uh, and that would tell me neither be exposed now, nor would it be a prospective opportunity the day that it tanks, the day that uh, the CMA moves forward. Now, the CMA has actually been bringing some slightly different concerns recently. Their, their very recent verbiage on what they are focused on has not matched up uh, uh, with the DOJ. So um, in terms of, I don't want to call it conspiracy theories because it's true, but in terms of um, cynicism about people using the tools they have for the purposes they say that they're using them for, that that is the risk that could be real deal risk for Activision. Yeah, and, and just so I, we jumped right into Activision, I pray, just so people understand why we're talking about Activision. Activision's under contract to get bought out by Microsoft. Uh, the, the headline price there is $95 per share. As we speak, Activision's trading at about 75. So you're talking okay. about a 27%, you know, what should be market neutral uh, return 27%. I, I think I've got it set to close 
in March, you know, mm-hmm. if we get a DOJ lawsuit, may, maybe it's next September or something. But, mm-hmm. you know, if it closes inside of a year with a 27 percent Chris IRA, like that's something people are going to find very attractive. Very obviously. Attractive. So, uh, yeah. And, and over the weekend, I believe there was a Microsoft CEO had a quote in Bloomberg that said, we're very, very confident about obtaining all approvals. And you'd have to think like you go into this, like they, they entered this deal earlier this year. They knew who the regulators were. Like one thing I always think about is companies know who the regulators are. They're not, they don't have their head in their sand and they pop and say, oh my God, the DOJ doesn't want big tech companies merging together. Like they understand that and they enter the merger and agree to a $2.5 billion break fee, which, you know, is pocket change for them. But they agree to that knowing what the environment looks like. So clearly they think there's some chance they get it through, but I'm rambling a little bit, but it is a certainly very interesting situation. Yeah, I would just I would add to that uh, one thing nice about widespreads is it's less sensitive to timing risk. Like if we're having a conversation and you and I don't have this conversation, but a lot of merger arb funds do. Hey, let's do a five percent IRR between now and the second quarter of next year. That is a you have to be extremely precise about timing because a five percent yield that takes twice as long as you think becomes a really bad investment. The nice thing about this case with a 52% IRR if it closes by the second quarter is even with a delay, you're probably fine setting it up here. Uh, and you might have a terrific opportunity kind of the day that uh is the, the day that the U.S. brings suit as long as they're not coordinating with the CMA. The CMA is really the deal killer here. If you can, uh, if you can get comfortable enough with that, I think that this would be uh, one where the companies have a good probability of winning in court. And unlike so many other deals right now, you might have a little bit less of a catastrophe with this target. They've been doing fairly well. Um, it was interesting that Berkshire Hathaway was buying shares, you know, right before the deal was announced. And he, convincingly, it was not a deal check. Uh, uh, he was he was pretty adamant about he wasn't kind of whipping this around on the deal rumors. Um, uh, so at least some um, intelligent players think that it was okay price before the deal premium after which they've been performing well. Um, I, I've been asking around if you can uh, expense Call of Duty as a research expense on, uh, for tax reasons, um, but th- it's a cool target. And um, uh, it is an aquifier. You know, uh, in Silicon Valley, they talk about aquifiers when you uh, buy the company to get the CEO. This is one they're buying the company to get rid of the CEO. The CEO had problems and uh, they said, well, let's, hire Satya Nadella to run the place. He can come up with something and they'll uh, be part of Microsoft and that'll smooth over some of the problems they had before the deal was announced. So that's Activision. I just want to, I mean, look, there's a lot of things out there with antitrust risk, as you said, because people are affecting in a much more aggressive antitrust. Are there any other antitrust risk companies that you're, you're really interested in or thinking about right now? I'm interested in how far they will go just on the buyer's identity versus the deal-specific issues. I mean, they have gone to, I I can't call it meta, all these new meta and alphabet, like, I think it's like an old man problem that once you know something's name, you're just going to stick with it forever. So Facebook uh, was told, hey, we'd really like you to get pre- uh, notification to us, not not just HSR, but like we want you to kind of 
bring us into your room when you're doing any kind of deals whatsoever. Um, so the outlook of this current FTC and DOJ is so new and so different. Uh, but uh, the fact that they uh, recently blocked a kind of small VR uh, uh, fitness app uh, that uh, that Meta Facebook was buying uh, really shows that they might just block everything. I mean, they might just yeah, and that say, was like a, a hundred million dollar acquisition or something, right? So you, yeah. you, know, you you say small Facebook's a multi multi hundred billion dollar company. Like you're you're talking about literal pocket change. Like that's approaching aqua hire in a a market that is still pretty much yet to be defined. And for them to block that, it's like, and you're basically saying Facebook cannot do deals by blocking. It's, it is that. And it really, the two deals the government lost this past week, both come into play, both in terms of the super narrow, if you were taking it to a judge, the market definition, I mean, especially if you're talking to an older judge, you're, you're going to have to explain to him that this industry exists and that this company exists and that they are monopolizing it. Uh, and I think, so there's gonna be a real question on market definition, right? Cause you're gonna have to have this incredibly narrow market definition. Uh, and then you have the vertical, vertical issue again, tricky to litigate. So maybe they're just gonna go after everything. And then if you say, what is everything include? Well, Amazon buying iRobot, Amazon buying One Medical. Um, maybe they're just going to attack Amazon with the HSR process and kind of brainstorming what they could do next. Uh, that's that's up there. Uh, neither of those would be a good, as good a case as Activision, which I think you could bring with a straight face. Uh, uh, kind of iRobot and One Medical, that, those are going to be yeah. Those are be real tricky. iRobot's such a strange one because for those not familiar, iRobot makes the Roombas, right? Yeah, everybody knows the Roomba that goes around the house. It's like, what is Amazon monop monopolizing by buying them? Like, it, it, it's such a strange one because you can't say they're monopolizing vacuums. Like, anybody can get a vacuum cleaner. And I, I think in part there was, I, I can't remember specifically, but I think in part, like all the antitrust is, there was a, a tweet thread that went viral. And I, I think that almost the government's responding to a tweet thread, like, what is Amazon going to monopolize? I, I believe the theory here is Amazon's going to use the iRobot to take the measurements of your house and uh, use that. But I, I don't know where the monopoly problem with them buying a vacuum cleaner is. Now, I don't. I also don't know why they'd really want to buy a vacuum cleaner. But you know, they want to take a billion and buy a vacuum cleaner. That, that's kind of their prerogative. So yeah. And and some of the privacy concerns that you could imagine somebody might have with both of these deals with Amazon. Uh, getting your medical information with Amazon, getting the dimensions of your home. As soon as people start complaining about it, what do they say? Well, I'm not going to buy that anymore. I'm going to buy one of the many other things I can do. In both cases, the customer complaints imply the normal free market response from a customer, which is if you don't like it, and for some reason you don't like the identity of the buyer, you go somewhere else. And they can, and they will. Now, I, I want to go back to one thing you said, and then I, I want to ask a, a couple other deals. One, one of the things sure. you joked earlier was, hey, there, the discussion around among like basically buyer antitrust is, hey, let's just all file these at once and certify and make them kind of pick. They can't try to block 100 of them, so make them pick the five they want to go after and the 95 sell through. And, and that, you know, that they, also would be an antitrust conspiracy between the law firms to... Yeah, <laughs> to that, that would be... But you know, just that, and I, I think Lena Khan had a quote where she said, look, we're committed to 
bringing difficult cases, but we're outgunned by these companies. We have 350 fewer people at the FTC than we did in the 70s. And look, I, I know you're no fan of Lena Khan. Uh, you know, I, I think both of us think regulations are uh, regulations, especially on antitrust, are a little bit overstated. But it does strike me as concerning. Like you get these companies, it, it's the old argument. Like the world wasn't designed for companies as big and as powerful and as cash rich as Amazon, Facebook, and these guys. And if they can just outspend their way, like it, it, it just does seem like there is a problem where the regulatory agencies are just this outmatched by some companies. Do you read anything into that? I'm open to the idea that our regulatory apparatus is antiquated. And I think where I would overlap the most with the kind of progressive wing of the antitrust bar uh, called the kind of hipster antitrust uh, people is the idea that the current rules don't fit well and do not contemplate this kind of company. And I think where we diverge is they say, well, we'll just use the rules we have and just apply them uh, outside their intent. And mine would be, okay, so let's pass new laws and have Congress address this. Uh, and and see how. And I think on that grounds, there's a ton of bipartisan uh, interest. Um, But these are big, powerful companies whose reach exceeds what the antitrust law contemplates, which doesn't fit well and concerns people across parties and ideologies. Um, it in some ways concerns me less. Uh, you know, I love the idea, and I'm still surprised how frequently I, with all of the, with all of the concerns about how ingenious their data mining is, I'm astonished how frequently I see ads that are demographically incoherent with me. You know, that are you know seeing something for. Uh, you know, pharma things for diseases that I can't get or that are just, you know, for women or for something like that. Um, yeah, I'm surprised that they don't do this better if they're, if the deepest, darkest conspiracy theories about what they do are true. Uh, you know, uh, uh, s- some of the uh, accusations against Twitter, something we've been thinking about a lot, uh, I found were so lame in terms of if they have all this information, they're going to be able to discover your phone number and I'm like that that's not that like it's it's not nearly as sophisticated when we kind of delve in because of litigation to some of the things that they're they're doing um and on ads i kind of find um evidence at least anecdotally that it's not super savvy um yeah so it's new and different than the antitrust authorities are used to dealing with and lena khan's solution is just to kind of force it and hope the judges are convinced let me ask what obviously there's an election coming coming this November. And right now, I think the, the market's got it priced. I'm just looking at predict it, which I'm sad that's going away next year. Yeah. But you know, it's a nice it's thing different. for quickly seeing what market's pricing. And it's got Dems 60% to hold the Senate, mm-hmm. Republicans 75% to take the House. And look, yeah. the FTC and DOJ's budget comes from the comes from, you know, Congress approves and then president. Okay. So they do get their budget from here. It, it affects uh, it affects confirmations, all that sort of stuff. So it, when I say Dem sixty percent, Republicans seventy five percent, do you think Republicans basically flipping the House? Does that do anything to the regulators? Does it change more if like you get a Republican sweep? Does that change how the regulatory outlook looks? Well, you know, appointments are are Senate heavy. Budget 
both matters, but it's really interesting because a lot of the direction of the Republican Party in the past half decade or so has become much more suspicious of big tech. So a lot of the most conservative members and most involved in antitrust are actually kind of Lena Khan curious, uh, or at least, you know, she could, she can say some things because of the identity of the people that are go- she's going after and get applauded, uh, get applauded on both sides. Um, so, uh, you know, I think what really matters is the kind of chamber of commerce, old style Republican party and more business friendly Democrats uh, kind of blue dog Democrats, you know, kind of what is their relationship with the um, opponents on both sides of their party at the more the kind of the wings of the progressives and the populists. But the, the but, but she might be okay with the progressives or the populists because neither of them like big tech. Yeah, no, they, I mean, the one thing I know we both listened to the Twitter uh, mud hearing a mm-hmm. couple weeks ago. And the one thing that really jumped out to me was, A, I didn't hear anything that made me too square, scared for Twitter. It, you know, it, it's scary as an overall thought, but there was nothing that jumped out to me. as But the thing that really jumped out was I think it was Lindsey Graham who said, hey, Elizabeth Warren and I are working together on uh, a new agency to regulate yeah. the big tech. And I was like, Lindsey Graham, Elizabeth Warren working on a big tech. Regular? That was just tricking me. All right. So that was the macro sense on the regulation, mm-hmm. but there was one micro sense I w- wanted to jump into and that's Tegna and Tegna owns a bunch of local TV stations. The, the stock prices, it's about 21 right as we speak. They, they're under a deal to get bought out for $24 per share. And that is kind of, held up in FT at the FTC level, I believe. And I, I was just wondering, you know, we've seen deals for regional TV stations fall through before, but with uh, some confirmations on the FTC with the potential change in uh, with the potential change in the in Senate and the House, does that affect one way or the other how the Tegna deal was going to go? Or you can say you haven't been following it that closely since I, I know we haven't talked a ton about it. I have been following it. I uh, do think it matters. Uh, the Democrats got uh, in, you know, they have a majority. There's not going to be a Senate problem where there is, Senate really matters when there's open seats, right? So everybody gets, it's kind of like playing musical chairs. If you lose the Senate, you're stuck with the, uh, you got to go to war with the army you got, and the army you got is the army you have before you lose the Senate. Uh, and uh, And historically, both parties have kind of worked with the other side, certainly about picking their own guys. So you really have to convince your party leader in the Senate of which individual you want. But in this case, um, the the Democrats really do have good uh, working control of the FCC. In addition to normal antitrust issues, which should be surmountable here, you just have the sensitivity, especially in the Liz Warren kind of progressive side, but a fairly general sensitivity on uh, local control of papers and kind of trying to hang on to local journalism um, and a fight against uh, aggregators that in many cases have just tried to squeeze out whatever remaining cash flow they can from newspapers in their dying years. Cool. Uh, the other two things I think you mentioned at the top, just to make a hard shift away from antitrust and regulatory, is sure. the first was tobacco. And I, I think the specific one you were kind of thinking of was sweetest match. So I'll, yeah. I'll just flip it over to you there. Um, so I uh, 
I'm very interested in tobacco. I've, I've never used it at all. Um, uh, shout out to Credit Bubble Stocks. That is the uh, kind of, I think has been one of the best uh, kind of uh, uh, newsletter blogs out there on the idea that uh, societies under uh, nicotine, that we've had this history with tobacco that's gone back for such a long time. And over the last century or so, nicotine use has gone way down, sugar use has gone way up, it has not been a good trade-off. Uh, and that uh, the big health devil is cigarettes themselves, is the, is the combustion and tar. That if you took out nicotine, that it's kind of intuitive that uh, huffing smoke into your lungs is not good for your lungs uh, and tar is bad. Um, but that nicotine has kind of been condemned because of this association. Well, Philip Morris, uh, P, um, uh, is uh, their history. I mean, they say our history and our present is in cigarettes, but our future isn't. And they came in and put this bid in there for Swedish Match that I think has some of the most innovative and promising uh, kind of post-cigarette delivery devices uh, that I think is the greatest healthcare innovation since penicillin. Um, uh, uh, I think that it saves lives and that it is something that should be uh, encouraged or at very least a matter of open inquiry. And I'm not a user, I am I'm a shareholder, so I guess I'm talking my book. Um, but I think that it's a really open question of what nicotine does, uh, especially when you get rid of cigarettes. Yeah. So why don't you just, so Philip Morris loves, I don't, I'm still trying to get over uh, the, the, the snooze or whatever being the greatest innovation in healthcare since been. I, I'm, I'm, I'm baiting, I'm sure, I, I'm baiting with that a little bit. Uh, but to look, Philip Morris, I, I think a couple months ago, they, they enter a deal to buy Swedish Match. I, I think it's 106 uh, SEC, S-E-K, mm -hmm. per, per share. And, you know, right away, you get a bunch of shareholders coming out and say, look, Swedish Match has this killer product. It's taking tons of shares, it's growing rapidly. This undervalues the company, it undervalues the future. I believe Elliott recently crossed the 5% stake. So, you know, I just want to focus on the deal here and say, like, what do you what do you think happens here? How, how do you think this plays out? Um, you have the three perspectives. You have the buyer, the seller, and the seller shareholders. Um, the seller's uh, management seem to acquiesce to this pretty quickly and complacently. Uh, the buyer seems very committed, especially they don't say this is a one-off financial deal. This is they say this is our future. Like we we we're tobacco and we're going to go into this. I think so. It's a huge strategic commitment for them. It's completely affordable. Uh, the numbers just say it approximately. There's there's fairly surmountable downside. I said that Activision was one that you could you know size with a somewhat knowable and limited downside. I think Swedish Match, you know, call it. Um, you'll lose money if Philip Morris walks, but I think that shareholders are emboldened. This is not a situation where you're bluffing. They're emboldened. Um, uh, a one a shareholder, uh, not one of their biggest, but certainly one of their vocal and well-followed. John Hempton said that he thought it was worth you know, 175 uh, to a private equity firm. So presumably worth even more than 175 uh, Swedish krona uh, 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 to a strategic buyer. Um, but I think the likelihood that you could get a substantial bump out of Philip Morris to get this done is really quite good. 
So I, I think there's a couple other things to argue, and we can talk about in a second. But you know, the one thing that always strikes me in these situations is, hey, you've got a management team. The the stock the day before, I'll, I'll use round numbers. The day before the uh, Philip Morris offer was around seventy five or eighty, if I remember correctly. And then, mm-hmm. so you've got a management team. They look at their stock. Shareholders are freely trading this well below one hundred six. They take a big premium deal from a strategic. Well capitalized buyer, you know, pretty much certainty of closing here, and then all of a sudden shareholders wake up and say, "Hey, no, this is worth." I, I mean, 175 is more than double what the stock price was trading the yeah. day before the Philip Morris sale. So I think the two pushbacks would be like, "Okay, well, why weren't shareholders like appraising uh, this rosy future before the deal?" Number one, and then number two, management sh- should have the best line of sight into the value, what the company's worth, the growth prospects, and everything. And management took this deal. So you combine those two together and you're like, hey, aren't you guys just kind of arguing and saying, oh, this is worth much more now. But, you, you know, you're putting on rose colored glasses when the day before maybe you had more neutral glasses. And like Philip Morris is just actually paying you the strategic premium. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I would just break it down into three reasons why something might break. Uh, the most dramatically cautionary is if it breaks because the buyer walks because they see something new in the target that's problematic. So, you know, if if you break a deal because of a material adverse effect, you don't have the deal, but you still got the material adverse effect. So if there's something wrong with it, then that pre-existing deal price might be invalid because it's you don't get it anymore. It's much worse than that. So you imagine a biotech deal with one product and the commercial pharma company walks away because the product doesn't work. You don't get the pre-deal price. You get maybe nothing. Uh, the middle category is just there's a bid and ask. You don't close the difference. It doesn't trade. Uh, in this case, though, I think there's actually a benign break scenario where this set of shareholders don't want this deal. Philip Morris doesn't bump enough. I think they will, but maybe I'm wrong. And the management then becomes under scrutiny from Elliot and other holders to say, you have to do something progressive now. We, we, we were this thing, but you have to reveal this value that we see. We see this future that's not matches. Uh, it is not uh, cigarettes, but you have these different products. And so they look to underlock, unlock value in some other way. And I think that the likelihood there that it breaks to say 90 uh, and not 80, uh, even if it breaks down, I think, is a, a substantial probability that it's kind of a particularly benign break, that it's drawn attention in the process uh, with holders that see more value than the management does. Oops, sorry, I was on mute there. No, that makes it, you know, I guess the 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 only, again, you said the shareholders now, they come in, they see more value, they're, they've got more pressure. You kind of, mm-hmm. like management kind of opened themselves up for that license, right? Like one of the things is at 80 before the PMI deal versus today, like, you had a sleepier shareholder base. They they weren't focused. They saw the long term value, but maybe they didn't need. Whereas now this deal breaks. You've got Elliot in there. You've got a more aggressive set of shareholder bases that are, as you said, going to hold people's feet to fire. The one other thing that that jumps out to me here, actually, two things. The smaller thing is, hey, this is worth one seventy five to a financial buyer, and that might be true. But you know, this is a fifteen billion dollar tobacco company with the high growth tobacco, like. The the pool of financial buyers who can buy a fifteen billion dollar tobacco company is it's not that big, and mm-hmm. all of them do have I, I think rightfully ESG concerns. Not in the yeah, not exactly. in the ESG. Like I do think they have. Hey, we go buy a tobacco company, and all of a sudden, all the pension funds who are our core customer 
won't invest into our funds anymore. Or they call someone, they say, what the hell? Like we, we can't own a tobacco company. So like you almost have, yeah, we could make a lot of money on this deal, but we're sacrificing our franchise for all the potential financial buyers there. Mm-hmm. It thins them out quickly. It, yeah. it really does. And, and this ESG thing, if you look at the, 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 the assets under management of the firms that have been sold out to this, it's just the hugest firms, right? So like you're really um, limiting the potential uh, uh, bidders. Like even I couldn't I, I couldn't even see like a Berkshire or something buying this company. You know, I, I, I just I don't know if that's right or something. I, know, I believe Buffett's invested in tobacco in the past, but I, I just don't know if in today's day and age I could see him buying a tobacco company and saying, hey, let's deal with all of that headache for a 20 billion dollar deal, which is still yeah. very small by the grand scheme of things. But let's deal with all this regulatory screening and everything. Anyway. Even if it's 2% of your upside, it's going to be 20% what you have to think about and talk about and respond to for the rest of your life. And the other thing I wanted to admit is we were emailing about this this morning, but you know anybody who's filing financial markets knows that the U.S. dollar has been on just an absolute rampage mm-hmm. this year. And, and you know it does strike me this deal is priced in uh, Swedish krona, 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 yeah, uh, and I believe two thirds of Swedish matches revenue and more than two thirds of their value comes in US dollars. So, you know, I, I just wanted that FX mismatch, mismatch right there could argue for a bump because they've been taking in cash flow. You know, if two thirds of their value in USD, that's going up versus the share bid just on that FX mismatch. So just wanted to ask you, how does that FX mismatch play into the thought process here? I frequently get this backwards because I first think about the arithmetic and then I have to, uh, it tends to be there's, it tends to be across purposes in terms of the business impact of selling back to the U.S., right? So uh, sometimes it's easier in this case, sometimes it's easier to nominally buy something, but then the thing you're buying might it might, might be worse off or vice versa, right? So um, uh, it's not always the secondary impact sometimes negates or softens the primary. The primary one in this case is it'll be easier for PM to pay more. Uh, they could bump substantially. Thanks, Thanks Andrew. Yeah, I agree, though. You know, then you start getting, it's just so, because then you start getting in, well, interest rates are way higher today than they were a couple months ago. So, yeah, you get the FX, but do you get the, hey, if we were financing this on, I'm pulling a number, 2% debt, and now that's 4%, like, does that mean we've got less room to go because, you know, the synergies are four years out to realize and all the values in the terminal category, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it's so interesting. But yeah, I'm with you. It's just, it's strange when you get this mismatch of, long, not mismatch, but this match of like long-term value shareholders plus a more aggressive activist all coming out and saying, wow, this strategic deal way, way undervalues this target company. Like that's a really interesting combination. Obviously it's a strategic deal, strategic deals you can pay up because they're synergies, it's the future, all, all that type of stuff. So very interesting. Uh, we, we talked tobacco, we talked antitrust. A- anything else you want to talk about here or should we wrap it up and save it till uh, a spooky Halloween episode? I think that's a wrap until Halloween and then we'll have yep. Halloween topics and other things. You know, it's right, the one thing we didn't talk about, which we've talked about almost every podcast we've done this year so far is Twitter. But I do think you and I have talked so much about Twitter elsewhere. We'll have so you know, much more next time. And I don't think there's been, there have been a lot, but I don't think there's been like groundbreaking news since the, the since the last one, the okay. next podcast we do, the Twitter trial trial will have happened. Yeah, so we actually will have quite a bit to talk about there. So we'll we'll I'm just teasing the next podcast. Uh, yeah. So people can look forward to the next podcast. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. I'll Thank be talking you for having to you me. Then, but looking forward to our podcast next month.
I look forward to it. Nice talking with you, Andrew. Bye-bye. A quick disclaimer, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this podcast. Please do your own work and consult a financial advisor. Thanks.